everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 51 of the Mark Guy Show. So I wanted to come back quickly after putting out episode 50. I recorded it late last night, really early Saturday morning. Uh, and it, it was a pretty pessimistic overall episode. I wanted to level that off. I wanted to balance that out with a far more optimistic episode. And this is something I've wanted to do for a while. I had a somewhat similar episode I was talking about. I, I forget which number it is. I'll put a link to it in the suggested readings, uh, reference articles portion of the website post for, for this episode. And I talked about how capitalism generally was making things better for us. And I was using one particular example, buying my sister a laptop as a gift and the process there and how you can get so much more for for basically the same price or less than you could have even just a few years before. And if you look back 10 or 15 years, it's incredible the value you get for your money in electronics compared to then. I was focusing more on that particular example and then I applied it. I applied it to some other examples, but I wanted this to be a little bit broader. And this is the best time to have been alive in human history. And I think we don't fully appreciate a lot of the advantages that we have today that we did not have in the past. And I wanted to do a full episode exploring a lot of these things. And maybe these are things that you haven't thought of. These are things that I've kind of collected over time. And if I didn't really think about it more closely, I probably wouldn't even think, oh my gosh, you know, we're really lucky. Our parents and grandparents didn't have access to these types of things when they were our age. So we should really take full advantage of these and figure out how to become more productive people and live happier lives. Maybe we can find ways to need to work fewer hours or work fewer years of our lives. And that's one of my big goals in life is I, I want to retire early. I, I want my wife and I to be able to retire early in our forties at the least. And I think we've made a, we've made very good progress on that so far, being able to eliminate all of our debts. we, we had significant student loan debt. It was my student loan debt. We're able to get rid of that quickly. Have been saving at pretty high rates, saving high percentages of our income. And I think we're, we're well on our way to reaching those goals. But one of the reasons why I think we can reach those goals is because so many things that you had to pay money to do in the past, you now don't need to. You can learn things without needing to pay somebody. You can do things yourself by being able to utilize the internet that you wouldn't have been able to do in the past. And a lot of people look at the downsides of the internet and how a lot of us are sitting on our phones all day or sitting on Facebook all the time and that's taking up so much of our free time and how this is a negative thing. But there are so many positive aspects of the internet that I really want to explore that. It's not just the internet though. The internet does make delivering a lot of these things easier, but that's not the only reason why this is the best time in human history to be alive. I think due to the internet, but due to other market forces as well, you now have entire businesses, for them to exist, they have to be able to cater to the lower and middle classes. They have to be able to deliver things to those classes because the purchasing power of those classes when taken in the aggregate is so much more than the rich, even though the rich on a per person basis have far more resources. But I've seen this, I, I, I just bought a couple pistols and they were my first gun purchases ever. And I was able to buy them online, have them shipped, have them transferred to me 
all for $316. And then I was able to have the ammunition delivered directly to me. Um, so I was able to do this basically all online. I did have to meet with somebody to have the transfer done, the, the, the FFL that I had it that I had it shipped to. But to be able to buy two guns for self-defense purposes, for recreational purposes, for $316 goes to show there's, there's not a huge profit margin to be made with those types of weapons because there's a certain minimum cost to, to be able to construct a, a gun, to be able to have tested it and make sure that you're not going to be liable for, for poor performance or anything like that. So there's not a huge profit margin to be made on these guns. But yet they're still sold because the numbers of them sold are large enough that that slim profit margin does enough to keep these companies in business. One of the ones I bought was a was a Phoenix Arms gun, uh, and another was a was a High Point. These are both two low cost companies. That's the market where they're operating, but there is a demand there in the marketplace for weapons like that, and these are for young people or, or people of modest means that, that don't want to spend $500 plus on a weapon, want to have something there for self-defense if they need it or to be able to go shooting with friends if they have friends that do that and, and, and don't want to spend that kind of money. And this is a rarity throughout human history, you know, really to have had these markets or for the lower middle classes to be able to have the, the type of disposable income where they are a force. And you see it in housing too, where the you don't see castles in the United States. You don't see castles with with thousand acre estates or anything like that. It's far more profitable in most cases to break that up into a bunch of subdivisions and build houses on one acre each subdivisions and sell that off. So that's far more common in the United States than huge estates. It depends on where you are too. Of course, in many parts of the country, people holding hundreds of acres themselves is not a rarity because there's not a demand for acre subdivisions. Maybe as population goes up over time, you'll see more of the country go in that direction. But the middle and lower classes are more of an economic force now than they've ever been than they have ever been at any time in human history. And that's a good thing for people of relatively modest means, for people who are not coming from money, for people who aren't going to be inheriting large sums of money. It means businesses desperately need your business and the business of people like you, and they're going to continually be shifting in order to meet that demand. And they're going to be continually trying to lower prices because those segments of the population are are far more price sensitive than the rich, than people who are buying Lexuses or Rolexes or you know lu- the luxury goods that you typically think of that you associate with the rich. Obviously, I'm far more price sensitive. If you, if you change the the price of something five percent, I'm going to recognize it far more than somebody who's buying a Rolex is going to notice that price difference. Not that they're not not that the rich aren't price sensitive at all. There is some there is some price sensitivity there, but it's not at the same level as people more in my demographic. But if we go beyond what you can buy, and I'll, I'll probably talk about that more throughout. This is just kind of a free-flowing uh, you know, free podcast here. I don't have any sort of plan on, on where I'm taking this. But if you look at what you can learn, so we talk about the high, the high price of college, how it costs you 
so much now to go to college. I've done full episodes on that, on the this, the student loan debt crisis and why that's come about really due to the government guaranteeing student loans and getting into the student loan business. But as you've seen the price of college go up, you've seen all of these free resources out there where really what college has become for the, for the most part, and this is not entirely, but in most situations, and if you talk to college students as well, they would verify this. They're going there to get the name, to get the degree, to be able to say, I have a degree from this university in this subject. That's why they're going. They're not going to learn accounting. That's not their primary focus. They're probably hoping to, to learn more about accounting along the way, but they want to have that accounting degree. And I think most businesses have have played into this. They do use that as a as a way to to get rid of unqualified applicants. That's really their their sorting system is using these college diplomas and these names on on resumes. But I think eventually we're going to go away from that. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing the value of a college degree decline, not just because more people are getting them. That may be part of it, but I think the the actual actually what people are learning on college campuses is going downhill. And while this is happening, so while the cost of of a college degree is going up, yet the value of it is declining, you have all of these free resources out there or very inexpensive resources where you can really master a subject. So I just did some quick searches. I've I've been thinking about doing this more myself. I've been I've been out of school now for uh, about two years, out of out of university for two years. But there's always that that wanting to learn more and and certain subjects where you know it really would be nice if I knew more about that. So just a quick search before I started this episode. And I looked at economics and finance courses because that tends to be where my mind goes first. But any subject you can go, I'm on, I'm on edX.org. I'll put a link to this on the website post for this episode. But there's a, a free self-paced course here, Accounting for Decision Making, if you want to learn more about accounting, an Introduction to Investments course. Uh, there's a, a Islamic Money Markets course, if you want to learn more about um if you want to learn more about the Middle East, Introduction to Risk Management, uh, Risk Management Tools and Practices, Fundamentals of Market Structure, I, anything you want, you can find a course out there for it. And if you want to just be able to watch lectures, MIT has a has a bunch of lectures out there on economics. Um, I saw Harvard has quite a few computer programming courses out there and, and, and algorithm courses and I don't really know anything about that. That's probably what I should try to learn more about if I'm going to go out and do this. But these are all free resources that are out there that a hundred years ago, people could not have even imagined these types of things being out there. If you wanted to master a subject, you had to figure out how to get the books. You probably didn't have access to all the books, even at a regional library, you know, even at the biggest library in your area. So you'd have to figure out where can I get those books from? You'd have to you'd have to talk to people who knew where to get them. You'd have to probably pay large sums of money to be able to get those books. And even then, you would not be able to just go and 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 figure out what's happening as you're studying it because 
these these topics are constantly changing. There are new papers coming out every day in each of these topics. And with the internet now, you can learn what's happening in that field for free or you know maybe you can you can pay small sums of money to become members of particular websites that do a better job of aggregating these things or give you the f- full texts right away. I don't really know what's out there and it depends on the on the topic too. But to have this this type of resource to learn is just incredible. Anybody that values knowledge, I think has to really sit back and reflect and think about what the internet and everything that sprouted from the internet has been able to do for learning. Um, another resource that, that I've liked a lot, I've, I've listened to a lot of lectures from Liberty Classroom, and this is Tom, uh, Tom Wood's project, but there are a lot of high-quality professors here, professors that have taught at top universities, have written multiple books, have been highly published in their fields, and for $89 a year, you can listen to entire courses from each of these professors, and they're very good overall. I'm not a current member. I was a member last year. I didn't renew my subscription because I really had gotten my fill during that year, but I very well may become a member again in the future when more courses are added. And I think the idea here that you can find professors that generally agree with you more that you think will will enhance your worldview, and that's what I thought with Liberty Classroom. I've been exposed to a lot of things that don't align with what I believe but being able to go and, and listen to a lot of these very brilliant people that do agree with me, that do believe what I believe, I, I think this is a great idea. And no matter where you fall in the ideological spectrum, there's probably something like this out there. Uh, th- this this type of idea has, has gained popularity for sure. So I guess moving beyond talking about knowledge and being able to learn, though I may come back to that at some point in this episode, we moved far away from our homes out to North Dakota because we it really checked a lot of the boxes that we had in an area where we wanted to live. So we wanted to be in a smaller city, which Fargo hit that. Um, we wanted to wanted to be a place where it'd be easy for my wife to find work. And Fargo has a very low unemployment rate down in the two to three two to three percent range. Um, wages were higher than they were in western New York so compared to my home the wages are higher out here cost of living not too different higher in certain areas lower in other areas definitely property taxes things of those nature or things of that nature are lower out here gas is cheaper but you pay more for certain things Uh, so we moved far away from our families and my wife is Canadian so her parents are you know, we're not just far away from them within the same country. We're in a different country from them. And doing this 15 years ago would have been very, very difficult. It would have been expensive to talk to them on the phone. But now you have these low-cost carriers. So I'm going to go back to, similarly to that to that gun conversation, being able to have a cell phone. We go through Cricket, and Cricket offers a plan with, it's 8 gigs of data each a month, and it's unlimited calling to Canada and Mexico, calling and texting to Canada and Mexico, and unlimited, you know, calling and texting within the United States, of course, too. So together we pay ninety dollars for this plan, no additional fees or anything beyond that, and we're able to talk to my wife's parents and and her siblings as much as we want, no additional charge to us. And you also have my wife has an iPhone, so she's able to do the iMessage 
with them and doesn't even have to go through texting. She can do FaceTime, which goes through the internet. So if if it could cost somebody on the other line, if they have an iPhone, she can use the, the FaceTime. Also can use Skype for free between countries. So we've had no issues there whatsoever. And it's been easier to communicate with my family. We can email back and forth. We can talk as much as we want on the phone without having to pay long distance bills. And this just would not have been feasible 15 years ago. People still did it 15 years ago. People still moved for new opportunities or for a different way of life or for whatever reason they had. But it was much more difficult. And you maybe had to rely more on writing letters to each other or had to make sure that you flew home more often or, or met up in, in middle ground more often. Whereas now we can feel like we're still fairly connected. It's obviously not the same as seeing our family in person, but we can talk to them really as much as we want. If we really miss them one day, we can talk to them for two hours on the phone if we want. If we're just having a, a rough day and, and miss home, miss, miss our parents or miss our siblings or, or whatever, or miss our grandparents. So that's been so helpful in this huge process or in, in this process. And I just can't imagine having done this. I keep saying 15 years ago, but think about 50 years ago. If you tried to do this, you would never talk to, to, uh, to your family. And that's probably why the big reason why people didn't move far away. And now it's far more common for people to, to move away. And it's definitely more accepted. Uh, so beyond that, I wanted to talk about finances a little bit. And this is another way that I think this is the best time to be alive in human history. Because I think you have far more control over your own finances than any any other people have had in human history. And not only are we paid more than anybody else in human history because we are more productive due to capital accumulation, so our wages are higher. And our wages are able to buy more than what they were able to in the past. Uh, not only has has that happened, but innovation, and this is fueled by the internet, but it's not just the internet, but you're able to have far more options at your disposal. And if you're able to wade through those options and able to really evaluate what's out there, the fees that you pay are lower than ever before. Um, your options are far more. You can put your money really anywhere in the world and in any asset with the click of a button. And I think this is a huge advantage. So you have something like Vanguard, which has come about, and it really has targeted the average person, the the average middle class person, I think, with, with their passive funds and their low fees as opposed to actively managed uh, funds or ETFs, which tend to have higher fees due to the actively managed portion. And those tend to be more focused on the upper middle classes and the and the upper class. So companies like Vanguard, I'm using them as an example, but have given middle class people an option to be able to put their money aside. You, you don't have to go out and try to beat the market, but you can be a part of the market and you can get a piece of these returns. Whereas if you go back to, say, pre-Great Depression, still only a small portion of the population had their money in the stock market. Of course, tons of people felt the impact of that crash because their jobs may have been impacted. Uh, you know, unemployment spiked following, following the Great Crash of, of 1929. And the Great Depression hit 
most groups of people pretty hard. But it wasn't because all these groups of people had all their money in the stock market. It still was mostly the the upper classes that had their money in the stock market. It, it was not a it was not a lower class and average middle class phenomenon to have most of your money in the stock market. But now it is. Now middle class people with a 401k, with an IRA, maybe maybe they have a a, um, a, a brokerage account as well. They can have their money in the stock market and be earning these returns. It's not just for Wall Street firms. It's not just for the rich. And some people try to frame this as being a bad thing because they think that that middle class and, and lower class people can be swindled by the smarter bankers. But I think there's so many options out there that if you're that if you're willing to wade through it, if you're willing to to read the fine print, see what's going on, and maybe you need to talk to somebody that knows more than you. But even then, there are a lot of investing firms out there and and wealth management firms out there that are designed to handle the average person's finances. They're not they're not there just to manage people with with million dollar accounts. They're there to to manage your fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars for a certain fee in a given year. If you just have no idea what you're doing and you would much rather trust another person to do it rather than wade through all that information. That's all out there. So if you want to, like me, retire early, or if you want to really have have your retirement in your own hands, I think there are far more options out there than ever before. And I look at uh, at our savings account. So we have our our savings account, kind of our emergency fund type of thing, in in an online account. So it's not through a local bank. It's not through a bank that I could walk into and and talk to somebody. But the rate there is ten times higher than the savings account rate that I could get at a local bank because the internet's made things more competitive and these large institutions is actually through Goldman Sachs. These large institutions are, are able to offer a higher rate than these, than these smaller institutions due to economies of scale. And you also have something like gold money, which I've talked about on this podcast, but this enables you to basically have a gold standard for your own finances. So to actually hold savings in gold and then convert it back to dollars if you need to, to use it to make a purchase or something. And you can actually have a debit card attached to this account. So if you don't trust fiat money, you'd much rather hold your money in gold than in fiat money. This gives you an option. And I have a little bit there as well, but this wouldn't have been feasible. For the average person to hold gold, you'd have to go out and find somebody with physical gold and buy that gold. Then it's difficult to sell it at really close to what it's actually worth. You're going to have to take a, a pretty decent haircut there because that other party is going to have to do some work to actually sell it in enough uh, in enough quantity to be able to really get the get the full price there for that for that piece of gold but with this you're able to do this online with the stroke of a button and you don't have to go through a broker you don't have to go through a pawn shop or through a precious metals dealer you can do it here and they do take a little haircut on each end 0.5 percent on each end but that's very small compared to what you'd have to do if you were doing transactions in physical gold in smaller quantities uh so financially i think this is the best time to be alive because not only do we earn more and we can have more disposable income if we want to set up our finances that way and if we want to make reasonable trade-offs and don't just need to keep keeping up with the Joneses. Um, 
most people unfortunately are just trying to keep up with the Joneses and that's why people are so indebted and they're they're spending 100% of every paycheck that comes in and not not getting ahead just treading water every single week but i think if you if you recognize this and realize i can live a different way there's more freedom to do that than there ever has been before due to all these options out there and um, i think that's a great thing i'm i'm very financially minded that's that's what my mind is drawn to i like numbers so this has been one of my favorite parts of the internet revolution and beyond this so you know beyond talking about finances when it comes to what the internet has meant what really information reaching more and more people really on a daily basis so every day more and more people are reached by this global network that is the internet and everything that's risen up out of the internet and what we've had is more books published than ever because you're you're bringing first of all you're making it cheaper and easier to publish books whether you're self-publishing books or whether it's publishing companies being able to find talent um, and you're having more classes of people from more countries being really able to have now access to that global marketplace so if you think about 200 years ago almost all books would have been written from really a a narrow social class so the the social class that was educated um, that was already tuned into the networks of the time and really you had huge swaths of the population that didn't contribute at all in that way because they weren't educated they didn't have access to those same networks and they went about their lives they they worked to be able to survive they had children they raised those children there's those children went on to live similar lives to them but they weren't really contributing to our advance in terms of of knowledge and, and new ideas and all of that but now you have people from all over the socioeconomic spectrum writing books and contributing and coming up with new ideas and this is one of the major reasons why innovation has skyrocketed in industry why we have more books published than ever uh, why if you if you're a music fan you have more music being released than ever and this is another one of my favorite parts of being alive today is you can find not just so much great new music because there's more out there and really every genre due to being able to go back and listen to old music and discover old music i think today's bands have more influences from a wider array of genres and a wider range of eras than bands have had in the past and i'm a sucker for old music i like a lot of older music but if you do want to go out and search there are ways to search and you will find very good new bands out there using things like spotify pandora um, there are a lot of different different outlets to find new bands and new music and beyond that being able to use a format like this a podcast for me personally being able to reach people by creating my own podcast but for so many people being able to find like-minded people out there who are able to produce something quickly and easily and cheaply and get their ideas out there Whereas maybe 25 years ago, you would have had to justify to somebody to allow you to go onto their radio station. So there, there was a huge filtering process where certain ideas weren't really allowed to get out there. Unknowns had to get their foot in the door some way. So a lot of times you had to know somebody in order to have a platform for your voice. And today you do not need that. 
you can go out and you can you can put something out on YouTube. You can you can have a channel on YouTube for nothing. For me, this podcast costs next to nothing. I did have to buy the mic and I pay a little bit for hosting each month. It fluctuates based on how many people listen, but it's a very inexpensive amount. You know, I'm paying on average a dollar to a month, which is virtually nothing to be able to get my ideas out there and to be able to reach people. And 25 years ago, I don't think I would have been able to do that. I don't know anybody that owns a radio station. I don't know anybody that'd be willing to put me on air. And a lot of times you had to have a a certain degree to be able to get on to air. But today you don't need that. You need a microphone. You can put what you want out there. Most things never get listened to. But you have that opportunity to get your ideas out there. And as a result, we have a far freer flowing uh, network of ideas and marketplace of ideas. And you can go out and you can really find like-minded people. And related to this, you can go out any sort of niche interest that you have prior to the internet. Prior, if you didn't live in this in this time right now, it would have been very difficult to find people who you could even talk to about that niche interest, let alone also had an interest in it. But now you can go out anything you can think of, and there's a message board for it. There's a community for it. You can discuss it with people. You can make friendships based on that interest, and you can you can find anything out there on the internet. I don't know if I have any great niche interests that really that, that really would apply to this. I'm a big sports fan of being able to, having moved away, being able to go onto message boards and discuss those sports with other people who really know what they're talking about is something that I wouldn't have had the luxury of doing. I wouldn't have had anybody to talk about these things with if it wasn't for the internet. But a lot of people have these have these niche interests that I don't, I don't know anything about and I wouldn't be able to carry on a conversation with somebody about it. And I can get how prior to being able to find those people, you would have felt isolated. You would have felt alone and not that people don't feel isolated and alone at times anymore, but it makes it far easier to not feel that way with the internet and with this, uh, this global network, but even more fundamental than all of these great gains and all of these great things that, that I see in my everyday life I think more generally, if we look at humanity as a whole and people being able to have enough to eat, have enough water to drink, to not be living in hunger, to not have to have your children working, all the evidence is pointing to now being the best time ever for all of those things. There's a great website out there, humanprogress.org. I believe it's run by the Cato Institute. If I'm not mistaken, I, I may be mistaken on that. I'm not. I'm not sure. I had pulled up a few graphs from there because I like to go here on occasion. They they tweet out some good graphics too. So if you're on Twitter, it's a good follow. But just a a few quick hitters. They have one food supply per person per day. So this is the number of calories that if you if you average across the planet, what people have access to eat uh, from 1961 to uh, 2013 this data set has and it's gone up from an average of 2,247 calories in 1961 to 2,852 calories in 2013 so you've seen almost a what would that be you know a 25 percent increase or, or you know that's a kind of a kind of a rough estimate but actually a little more than that, a little more than a 25%, between 25 and 30% increase in the number of calories that people eat per day. And this is a good thing. This is largely driven by 
economies like uh, China and India liberalizing and opening up their their markets and those two both being over a billion people those countries make up such a substantial portion of the world's population i'm not saying this isn't happening everywhere but those two are the are the biggest drivers of this so many of those people coming out of scrounging by and maybe not having enough to eat to be able to continue to survive now they're reaching a point where they are able to grow enough food or are able to purchase enough food and are able to worry about something beyond just eating and drinking enough water to be able to survive to the next day. And this is such a fantastic advancement, something that that we in our everyday lives take for granted. But this is something that still is an issue in a lot of parts of the world, but we've made major progress on this issue. And opening up markets, really markets have done more for this than any government possibly could do. It's one of the biggest problems I have with with people who assume that if you if you are talking in favor of markets, that you're favoring the rich. Well, go and look at these types of data sets and look at what these countries like China and India have done and why they've reached where they've reached. And it's been because of markets. It has not be, been because of government action. Uh, so people who are advocating for markets are advocating for the poorest among us, the poorest among our uh, among fellow mankind. So that was one cool data set from there. Another one, uh, children who have to work for a living. So child labor is another thing that we don't have to deal with here in the United States anymore because we've, we reached a level of productivity where now adults can, can produce enough and make enough in order to provide for their children, allow their children to get education and all that. But in a lot of places around the world, that this still hasn't fully taken hold. People still aren't fully productive enough to be able to do that yet. But we've made major progress here as well. So in 1994, um, 47.2% of children aged 7 to 14 around the world were economically active, meaning they worked at least part-time for a living. If you go to today, or 2015, the most recent number in this data set, that's all the way down to 5.91%. So we've reduced from 47 to 6%, basically. So over a 40% reduction. And I don't know if this number will ever get to zero. I think it will at some point reach zero or will approach zero. But we've made such progress in that in only a 20-year time span, 21-year time span. And I've got to expect that to continue. And once again, something that we take for granted, but something that today people around the world have have it so much better than they've had even in very recent history. One more, I'll only point out one other data set that I found real quickly, but you can get lost on this site for a very long time. But uh, cell phone subscriptions per 100 people. This is a relatively new technology, you know, even in the United States. I remember when my mom got her first cell phone. I didn't get my first cell phone until uh, the late 2000s decade um, and I didn't have a cell phone consistently that whole time but you know now I've got a smartphone like everybody else and it's great but if you look at back in 1990 per 100 people worldwide 0.27 people had cell phone reception or had a, had a cell phone subscription so this was for basically the richest people in the richest countries and that goes to show you know 
most people when I was a little kid didn't have cell phones yet. And it, it rose slowly. It's really had exponential growth recently, though. You know, as early as if you look at, say, 2004, it was at 37. 37 people per 100 had a cell phone subscription around the world. But now, 2014, the latest year in, in this data set, and it's probably gone up a little bit since then, 105.75 cell phone subscriptions per 100 people worldwide. So there are actually more cell phone subscriptions than there are people on the planet. And once again, this is driven primarily by uh, China and India and a lot of these other countries that may have, that you may think of as being third world or developing countries, but really being able to come into the modern economy and have modern conveniences like a cell phone subscription. So all these indicators show it's a better time globally to be alive than it ever has been before. And I think that's probably a pretty good place. And I don't want to make this too long, but I, I did want to have a more optimistic episode. I know that I complain a lot when talking about news and there are a lot of ridiculous things that, that our governments do that, that people do today. And there's no problem with complaining about that. There's, there, there's, there are always ways to get better. And I do want to see things continue to get better, especially on the governmental front. And I think that in most cases, what's happening there is taking away from the trends that I talked about in this episode, that those things are happening in spite of what's happening in Washington, D.C. and what's happening with a lot of global governments. Uh, so I'm going to continue to, to report on those things, but I also want to keep it in mind, keep things, keep things in perspective, that things are better than they've ever been before. This is the best time to have been alive in human history, and we have a lot to be thankful for but also learning why we've gotten to that point. And I think in most, if not all, of the cases that I talked about here today, you can point to markets and companies needing to cater to the demand of the average person for being the reason why things have gotten so much better. So thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, I'll hopefully be coming to you again later this week, I'm hoping. But have a great week. 